Cunningham. But first, if you have been following along with the extradition case of Huawei's Meng Wanzhou, you would likely know, back in federal court today, claiming that uh, some documents show that there is a cover-up happening, Meng Wanzhou and her lawyers wanting those documents handed over. Richard Curlin joins me on the line now. He's an immigration lawyer and policy analyst. Richard, thanks so much for joining us to talk about this. A pleasure. Uh, So what uh, was unfolding in court today? Well, the defense idea is to demonstrate the intimate intertwining of Canadian and American law enforcement on the case. CSIS is designed to gather intelligence, not evidence. Getting the evidence is the job of RCMP and CBSA, so defense is going to ask, why is a Canadian intelligence unit working on a bank fraud case? And didn't the Americans have evidence in hand before starting the extradition case in Canada? So the defense is going to want to know what information passed between Canadian and American law enforcement. And it's all because of the defense theory of a charter violation, which today might get an upgrade if they can show it was a last-minute conversation with someone from the USA that changed the plan for immediate arrest, as expressly ordered by the BC court, into delayed arrest after several hours of questioning. The defense is banking that an immediate arrest would have triggered charter rights, because there's no immediate arrest, a delayed arrest, defense will want to know how that happened and how you converted a court order demanding immediate arrest into uh, no arrest and under customs and immigration, a multi-hour interrogation that ended in court with a public apology by the Crown for having accidentally uh, transmitted sensitive information obtained from a cell phone computer of Ms. Meng uh, and provided to the FBI. So portions of the redacted documents may be relevant for that purpose. That's the battle today in Ottawa in federal court. And you said uh, redacted documents because that's one of the arguments, isn't it, being made by lawyers for CSIS and for the RCMP that if they were to hand over those documents, there could be uh, sensitive information. And the Crown is right. You have to protect agents, witnesses, undercover people, sensitive operations and intelligence on both sides of the border. Uh, Fortunately, our rule of law, our Canadian system has built-in safeguards. Even though the defense might not be able to view the unredacted document, uh, there's uh, something like a, a, a special... Uh, advisor uh, that has a security clearance uh, that can uh, assist the court in the examination and the court on its own initiative can take a peek under the hood. Uh, So uh, our system works well. Uh, The the, the Crown is going to likely want to uh, not redact as much as possible. Uh, The next uh, two, three days are closed to the public and that's where you want to be uh, you want to be that fly on the wall to hear uh, the, the, the real deal. That's where the meat's going to be. And the point of this, I mean, the point all along, Meng Wanzhou wants the case thrown out, wants it to be gone. Is this enough or is this one piece of something bigger to... Well, yeah, I agree, Jill. I mean, this, this does appear uh, to be one piece of something bigger. How is it 
that Canadian intelligence has a unit that's dealing with this case prior to her arrival in Canada. Normally, Canada's role is real simple. Arrest the person. So you, you, you get the heads up uh, from the airplane uh, computer systems into CBSA, and the officer's waiting. Well, what's Canadian intelligence doing with that? So it builds the case for the defense that, in fact, this was not an arrest. This is a concerted uh, 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 criminal investigation involving both Canadian and American law enforcement. Uh, the intelligence agencies on both sides of the border may have done indirectly what they could not do directly. Uh, and the redacted documents, likely because it's CSIS, will contain uh, carefully worded memos, reports of who said what and when, who did what and when. And that's a goldmine for the defense. Unfortunately, I don't get, think they're going to get through the gate to get those nuggets. How many documents are we talking about? Do you know the scope? Well, I went in person to federal court to pry. It's a, a shut gate. That is not uh, publicly available information. The affidavits are sealed. The, the, the process is not going to be publicly accessible. It's another mystery in this geopolitical irritant. Wow. And, and you made the interesting point, though, even the redacted documents, I would think even if they were granted those, my guess is the redactions would be so much that they would say they need more information or they need that the special advisor or they need somebody to get to get to the, the heart of it in that they want to know exactly what's in there. Well, yeah, they're, they're, it's, it's a tough balance for the court. Uh, priority one is exculpatory evidence uh, for the defense. After that, it's a, it's a discretionary call on the part of the court, and the federal court has long experience in dealing with intelligence-redacted items. So it's going to be interesting. Uh, it, it likely will fit the defense theory of um, uh, unreasonable or abusive uh, interference in the Canadian extradition process by American law enforcement. I expect to hear in open court the marrying of what President Trump said about this case, what the Prime Minister of Canada discussed with the President regarding this case. And now we see a law enforcement activity on both sides of the, of the border frustrating a direct court order for the immediate arrest, converting it into a delayed arrest and uh, convenient multi-hour interrogation. It's an institutional challenge, if you want to look at it that way, between uh, uh, the court, our charters, and Canadian law enforcement. So this is, this is exciting, at least for me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I continue to watch. How long do you anticipate or do you have any idea how long this part of the process is going to take? Wow. Uh, this part of the process is relatively quick. Uh, so it should end up by this week. And, and the normal delays uh, for an expeditious decision should result given the timeline in B.C. court. Federal court is aware of the utility of the federal court decision here. Uh, but after that... Uh, frankly, uh, it's going to be a, a defense call. Will they spring the charter argument or uh, are they betting uh, a change, a regime change in Washington after November? Because a new personality in the White House might uh, also resolve this easily, painlessly. 
and none too soon, as far as I'm concerned. All right. Uh, we will continue to watch and see what happens next. Uh, Richard Curland, always good to talk to you. Thank you so much. Welcome, Jill. Take care. Well, it uh, was a beautiful weekend. If you like sunshine, warm temperatures, getting outside, enjoying the great outdoors, many people having staycations. Uh, that is the buzzword of the summer. Unfortunately, there was a drowning in Cultus Lake this past weekend, and uh, there are more people out. So is there more danger? Are people letting their guard down when it comes to staying safe on the waterways? Dale Miller is the executive director of the Life Saving Society and joins me on the line now to talk a bit more about this. Dale, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure, Joan. Uh, are you seeing or, or hearing about uh, an increase in calls or in, incidents involving people uh, on the water and perhaps not being as safe as uh, we're supposed to be? Uh, we, we're certainly seeing more people on the water, but I don't know that we're seeing more incidents compared to previous years. I mean, this, this is the peak of our great weather. We love to get out on the water, and, uh, and unfortunately, this is the time of year where we see the drownings. In fact, last week was a National Drowning Prevention Week, and we choose that third week in July because over the years, our stats have shown that uh, that is the the week of, of highest drownings. And unfortunately, once again, that uh, proved true this year. Uh, looking at what happened at Cultus Lake on Saturday, uh, this it's a story that unfortunately often sounds so familiar. Witnesses saying that this was a man who appeared to be swimming with a group of, of about 10 people in the lake. Uh, there is a sharp drop-off in the lake at that point too. But I think, is it is it a safe assumption that people often feel safer? You're swimming with a group of people and it doesn't feel like, like anything bad could happen? Yeah, no, that's true. I think um, when we drill down to the numbers, though, and we've seen 20 drownings in BC so far this year, and that's about the same as last year. Numbers are trending down because two years ago it was doubled out at 40. So, But if you drill down and, and look at the numbers so far this year, of those 20, half of them did not intend to go in the water. So something happened, one fell through ice, a number of transportation-related. But then there are those, as the fellow in Cultus Lake, who uh, planned to be in the water, or intended to be there, and then got in trouble. And so you're right, when they're in a group, they, they may feel a little more secure. But, um, you know, unfortunately, any, anybody can get in trouble. Even a good swimmer can be incapacitated by a, a cramp or, or cold water. And, um, and unfortunately, that gets them in trouble very quickly. Uh, we saw a drowning just a few weeks ago as well in the Fraser River, somebody that went in to retrieve a football and, and unfortunately, again, tragically lost his life. Uh, is, it, is that an issue, too, that we see uh, happening every year and that it might on the surface look like it's not running that fast or not look dangerous, but a much different story once you actually go in? Yeah, exactly. And and again, you know, this year we've had some some high and, and fast water flows. People may not be used to that and and it may not look like it's flowing quickly, but uh, uh, once they get in, they unfortunately find out, and, and that's that's definitely the case. And, uh, you know, these, these are all very, very tragic. The, the uh, father uh, who saved his daughter but drowned himself up near Kelowna a few weeks ago, too. I mean, these are situations where people try to help, but uh, unfortunately they get in trouble themselves and, and just overestimate their abilities. Uh, so what are the key things that people need to know or need to keep in mind if they are heading out uh, on the water, be it a river, lake, ocean, uh, they're, they're going out to enjoy this beautiful weather? Yeah, so as we said, uh, just knowing the water, uh, understanding uh, if it's flowing fast, if it's cold. Some of our lakes are still very cold, so 
being aware of that. Uh, certainly for kids, um, being very close to them, and not only at the waterfronts, but at the uh, backyard pools as well. Um, and, of course, life jackets on them um, in most cases and, and on a boat as well, certainly wearing life jackets. Um, but the other thing, too, is just to think ahead to, to the location you're going to. And, you know, as, as negative as it sounds, thinking of the worst-case scenario. So what if something happens to somebody in my group or I witness somebody uh, who is in trouble in the water? What am I going to be able to do? Am I able to take something with me? Uh, maybe a, a life jacket. Um, you don't want to become another victim. So certainly going out on your own is a last resort. If you can throw something to them or reach them. Many of these people uh, get in trouble three to five meters from safety. And so a little bit of help uh, from a flotation aid or something that's thrown to them. We also try to place more of the public access life rings on the waterfronts, and we hope that that can help in a, a drowning situation as well. And do you find, do people kind of underestimate too, like you said, even a great swimmer can get a cramp or can get into some kind of trouble. Do people underestimate kind of the level of swimming ability you need to, to make sure you are safe and that you're not going to get overtired or, or get in, a, in an unsafe scenario as well? Uh, yeah, definitely. We we see that in a number of drownings each year is that, uh, you know, there may be a, a dock out in the lake and, and from the shore it, it looks fairly close and, you know, I'm a decent swimmer, I can get to it and once I'm there I'll be fine. And unfortunately they, they may tire along the way and uh, and, and that's when the, uh, the negative consequences will occur and, uh, you know, we, we hope that people will... Even uh, some of the experienced long-distance swimmers use something called a swim buddy. It's an inflatable piece that uh, goes on their back. It doesn't interfere with swimming. Uh, but something like that could really assist in, in these situations, both for the swimmer or somebody who's trying to rescue someone else as well. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned that because I see uh, the people swimming off uh, Kitts Point or off in the waters there. And I always assumed that was for to make sure the boats could see you. But uh, I, I hadn't thought of that. It also is a flotation device and could it help you, I would imagine, if you got tired as well. Yeah, exactly. It doubles as a flotation device, but also for visibility because it is, uh, in most cases, a bright color. And as I say, it doesn't interfere with their swimming. They're open water swimmers that, uh, you know, do this as uh, for fitness, especially with uh, less pools being available. Uh, you'll see more more people out there doing that. And they know what they're doing. They do this all the time. So taking that flotation device, even though they're very competent swimmers, is definitely a safeguard that everyone should be thinking about. All right, we'll leave it there for today. Uh, Dale Miller, thank you so much. Always a good and uh, timely reminder about safety on the water. Thank you, Joe. Well, there is a lot of anticipation about when a vaccine might be available to fight COVID-19. Many different places working on this. But what is the impact of the vaccine depending on your age? Well, Byram Bridal, who is an associate professor of viral immunology at the Department of Pathobiology at the University of Guelph that has been looking at this and joins us now to talk a little bit more about it. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, hi, Jill. Yes, it's my pleasure. Uh, what is the difference then, or what are, your see what are you seeing as far as the effectiveness of vaccines when we bring into, uh, when, we, when we look at the age of the person getting the vaccine? Uh, yeah, this is a couple of issues um, in the elderly. Uh, so as immunologists, what we um, uh, refer to uh, in terms of aging of the immune system is uh, immunosenescence. 
And, uh, and so this basically means an aged or, or um, old immune system. And so it has two implications actually in the context of COVID-19. So one is that uh, as our immune systems age, we, uh, they, they start to adopt more of a pro-inflammatory type of response. So that uh, it's interesting, people who are elderly, uh, their bodies tend to be in a chronic state of low-level inflammation, and they tend to be more prone to responding to pathogens in an inflammatory way. And so that, of course, is a problem with something like COVID-19 because the problem, the most severe uh, cases of COVID-19 are caused by overly robust inflammation in the lungs. And so the elderly are more prone to these overly robust uh, inflammatory responses. But of greater concern and what's relevant, directly relevant to the development of vaccines is that our immune systems become less functional as we age. And in short, what that means is that vaccines in general uh, and, and this would include any vaccines developed against COVID-19 won't work nearly as well in the elderly. And the reason why that's very important is that it's the uh, elderly uh, who, who are the uh, age demographic that are in most need of a COVID-19 vaccine. I, that is interesting. You're right. And, and the, the fact that it is the group that needs it to, or would probably benefit to, from it the most. When we say elderly, what specific age group are you looking at? So that would be 65 and over. Okay. And, and have you seen this with other, or do we, do we learn this from other vaccines? And I was thinking of the pneumonia vaccine being one that obviously is targeted to people in that age group. Is it every vaccine that there's that, that type of response? Uh, yes. So, so it's not that vaccines don't work at all in the elderly. Um, they, they do, of course, but just not nearly as well when compared to younger people. And, uh, and what's interesting, so when I actually uh, investigated this, um, I, I developed vaccines myself. And I'm as guilty as anybody, actually. I, I started off in my career developing vaccines against cancers, and cancers also have a highest incidence in elderly people. But I've been uh, one of the scientists, I have to admit, who has, uh, just through my training, and also because of cost efficiency when it comes to research, focused on young animal models. Um, and, and so I was shocked when I started looking into this. And in fact, the, the entire field of vaccinology concentrates excessively and almost exclusively on young animal models. And that's, of course, the time, that, that's the, that would be the right time to adjust our vaccine strategies so that they can actually work well in the elderly. Right now, the way the, the vaccine development process works, and you'll even see this with COVID-19, if you look at all the clinical trials that are being done right now, you'll see that all the phase one trials are being done in people that are under 55 years of age. And it's not until they get to the very late stages of human clinical trial testing that the elderly start getting tested. And if you find that your vaccines don't work effectively in that age group, uh, it's too late to uh, redesign your vaccine at that point. And could it work the other way then? If you were testing a vaccine on an older person, is there the, the fear, though, if you did find one that worked, it wouldn't work on younger people? Uh, that, that wouldn't be the concern uh, so much. Um, no, I don't think that would be nearly as much of a concern. Uh, the opposite is definitely true because the younger people are going to be more uh, responsive and, and they're going to respond, if anything. So if a vaccine worked well in the elderly, in theory, it should work even better in younger individuals. And so that's why if we really want to get vaccines that work well in, in older individuals, we need to uh, start focusing our research on, we need to use animal models that represent that age group, um, which means we need to be working with old animal models who, who are experiencing this condition of immunosenescence or, or in uh, uh, 
a relatively dysfunctional immune system due to age. Right, because then if because if they weren't being tested on the older animals, then it would be difficult, wouldn't it, by, for human trials? Because you wouldn't have a group or you would be putting a group in danger, I would think. Uh, yeah, so, so yeah, that's exactly why the time to do it is, is actually the preclinical testing when animals are being, are being used for this testing because uh, in the phase one clinical trials, they focus on safety. And so by definition, you, you wouldn't want to select uh, individuals who would, for which there'd be a greater safety risk and, and the elderly would fall into that. So that's, that's exactly why the early stage clinical trials for the COVID-19 vaccines are being done in people under 55 because they're the group that would be less prone to severe adverse events or toxicities caused by these vaccines. So it's perfectly appropriate for, for the safety testing. Um, but again, the, then the problem is the next stage is actually making sure the vaccine works. And again, if we want a vaccine to work in older individuals, then we should be designing them from the get-go to work in that group. And is that ever done, or is it a model that to vaccine development that it is always done on younger animals and in the younger age group for humans? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, some people do. Uh, very few scientists do. So what I did is just uh, I did some research on this, and anybody, anybody listening right now uh, could go and do search for any uh, scholarly article that's been published on vaccine development. It could be for any vaccine. And if you just quickly scan through any paper, one section is called the materials and methods section, and they'll always have a subsection on the animals. And if you look, almost every vaccine study that's done is done on young animals. So mice that are in the range of six to eight weeks old is typical. Um, even when you get to translational studies, so studies in non-human primates, and we've been seeing a lot of these being done for COVID-19, they'll typically involve primates that are uh, about three to six years old. And that's the equivalent to a human adolescent, uh, up to some, a human in their early 20s. And so we're very good at vaccinating young people. And you have to remember, that that's, that's an appropriate demographic because a lot of diseases often are, will have the most severe outcomes in the very young and the very old. But this is what's interesting about the COVID-19, right, is, is actually the very young in this case are the, are the most protected from the severe cases of COVID-19. And we don't have any mortalities in Canada in, uh, in, in anybody under 20 so far. Um, and so in this case, it's put the spotlight on the elderly. Um, and, and yet our, our entire vaccine development system is not designed to optimize vaccines for that age group. It is uh, interesting to to look at it that way, for sure. We're almost out of time. I don't know if you can answer this. Do you have any, uh, given your background, what do you think would be a timeline as far as getting a vaccine for COVID-19? Uh, yeah, so, of course, there's lots of promises out there, uh, and it depends what you're aiming for now. So the, the ideal from the get-go was to get generate a vaccine that would protect people from infection, uh, so it, it, would, it would stop the infection of the SARS coronavirus, which is causing this COVID-19. Uh, realistically, the timeline for that is is going to be way longer than what's being predicted. Uh, it's not going to be ready. Those kind of vaccines are not going to be ready in 2021. It would be sometime thereafter. Um, uh, the previous record for, for getting a vaccine through clinical trial testing successfully was one that traversed that uh, path in four years. But we could have a vaccine sooner that's okay, like subpar, but not, not protective against uh, disease spreading. So one of the things that concerns me, you'll see the governments right now are starting to redefine what they're going to call, the, the, how they're going to de define a vaccine is successful. And one of those things is as a vaccine that simply reduces the severity of the disease or the number of deaths associated with the disease. 
So we're starting to downgrade our expectation for these vaccines now. All right. Uh, Byron, we'll leave it there. We're right out of time. Thank you so much. You're welcome. My pleasure.